if a tune goes by, it doesn't have that much harmonic chord progressions like James Brown. I mean, that's music is so valuable. I think that's the most important musician almost in 20th century music, if you think about it. Welcome to Underscore, where we explore the innovative music of artists who create beyond the boundaries of classical. I'm Thomas. I'm Chrysanthi. And this is the classically trained, but genre omnivorous, music world we live in that we want to share with you. Each week, a new guest pulls us into their orbit to explore their creative process, their music, and their story. We dig into their inspirations, habits, and how they function as artists living in the 21st century. Then at the end, Thomas and I leave you with Old, New, Borrowed, and Blue, our current musical obsessions for you to check out. Without further ado, it is time for us to welcome an artist who is known all over the world by fans of jazz, rock, metal, electronic, folk, experimental, world, and classical, every genre you can possibly imagine. To pigeonhole this composer, violist, and arranger would require sifting through hundreds of recordings and well over 50 albums from his own solo masterpieces to his collaborations and tours with Laurie Anderson, Bill Frizzell, Animal Collective, Sun, The Decemberist, Blonde Redhead, Gosh, I'm barely scratching the surface because it is an epic list of artists. We are talking about the one and only Avon Kong, who is here in the studio, and he's brought his viola with him. We're so excited about Avon Kong because he's a musical polymath who does the whole genre-bending thing, but in a really unpretentious way. To quote Pitchfork, in Avon's music, boundaries aren't smashed, but simply ignored, dreamily melting away. That sounds right up underscores alley. In fact, we know you'll be excited about his music because when we held our underscore focus group almost a year ago before we launched, his song Marriage of Days was unanimously the group favorite on our entire playlist. We are currently listening to that very track, Marriage of Days, from Avon Kong's album Virginal Coordinates. Hi, Avon. Welcome to Underscore. Hi. Thanks for having me here. So your music draws influence from such a diverse background of training, and you've collaborated with this huge list of artists we've just named and many more. How would you describe what you do, the music you make, to someone walking down the street? Uh, Okay, we'll just start off with a bang. (laughs) That question has always plagued me because... um, there's a number of different things that I do, I guess. There, there, there's not just one thing, but basically they fall under the category, the overall category of music. My solo stuff, um, I kind of considered that to be like virtual music or studio music, stuff that I made um, that not necessarily intended for live performance, which now I'm thinking of it as more like non-music. And then I got interested in music per se, uh, especially once I started studying deeply with Dr. N. Rajam, who's a great violinist from uh, North India. And uh, previously I had studied with Michael White, so that also a great violinist in the realm of jazz and free jazz and sort of spiritual jazz um, movement. 
and fusion jazz too. So he had kind of like brought me in. But I knew that I was gonna going to study music in parentheses within like this broader field of like non-music or research. And then there's the collaborative work, which is just like, a, you know, right now I just call it arranging like everybody else. And I, I just, uh, I'm very curious. It's also, also a form of studying, like curious to see how people do it. And there's so many different ways out there. It's all, it's like different minds, I guess, or souls, you know, their processes and like getting into their language with them. I don't know if that makes sense as an answer. It's like three different That's a lot. approaches, right? I'm curious about non-music. Mm. And I'm also curious about when you arrange and collaborate with other artists mm. and you said it's like studying, do you take elements of things you learn from that and apply them to your own practice? Or how do you see collaborations like fitting into your grand scheme of your own music? Or do they not? They do, but not in the material way. Like I don't steal material from one collaboration mm -hmm. and insert it into into another or into my own. Like what's a collaboration that taught you something, you know, where you were studying kind of their way of thinking and making music, as you said before? It's discursive. It's the discursive practice. And that's where I actually believe that music lives. It's not in live performance. When I was uh, wondering, like, what is it, the essence, if we can speak of that, of this musical practice that, that we do, you know. Everything is like contrived. Studio, that's why it says virtual, you know, and live performances oh. also feel very artificial, like everybody get up and create now, be inspired, downbeat, you know. So I just realized that, you know, where it lives is the, is the collaborative process, the kind of discursive process, which then I, I do bring that overall idea back into my own practice. I think. If we go back to when you first started mm -hmm. your musical training, mm -hmm. started on the viola, is that correct? Actually, I started on violin. Started on the violin. Great. Is there some moments in your musical training when you were younger that seminal moments that perhaps put you on the path that you feel you're on now? Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, so I did violin and then I also played electric bass when I was in high school. So I played in some bands, also the jazz, you know, school jazz group. And I had a band outside of that. So all of those experiences were pretty important. But um, I can think of one. Um, I can just mention a couple. Like at, at different points, I used to practice a lot. So actually some of those points were like revelations, like especially with things like Bach, the solo Bach. Once I started getting into that, like as a teenager, that kind of took a, took a lot of um, passion, I guess. first time that I heard certain music, like I remember when NWA came out, it was sort of like definitely a moment where I couldn't believe what I was hearing musically and, and previously Public Enemy and De La Soul, so a bit like that era of hip hop. South Central Los Angeles, nothing happens. It's just another good day, 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 day. Playing in the youth orchestra, okay, go back to classical. Playing in the youth orchestra was a big, yeah, that was a big deal because I couldn't hear how like orchestration worked and stuff like that and started getting interested in composing hearing contemporary music for the first time mm -hmm. mind-blowing you know 
but many moments stand out. One is that I used to uh, take out records from the Corvallis Public Library when I was like 10, 12, like a kid, basically. And my grandparents lived over in Corvallis. So that public library, which I, I had the chance to visit lately because I went up there to view the eclipse totality uh, event last year, go back into that library, and I was just like, whoa, I learned so much in this thing because I took out uh, Coltrane, Sunship on vinyl. I took out uh, Coltrane Giant Steps, Charles M. Mirkunian, Lexical Music, which was just huge impact and uh you know braxton other stuff i had no idea what it was i really didn't know and looking back on it i'm not sure why i made those choices other than those are records that you find in a library it's not really a commercial record store so maybe the covers just looked interesting stuff like that but you did find a it seems you found a lot of inspiration from non-classical for sure yeah yeah (laughs) <laughs> what can I say? Oh, yeah, the first concert that I saw was Ravi Shankar, and also my friend was from uh, India growing up, so I used to hear a lot of Indian music over at his house, and that actually fixated, like I was actually relatively sure that's what I wanted to do, that's what I wanted to learn, and I couldn't actually find out. You mean like uh, classical Indian music? Classical Indian music, yeah, and, uh, and until I got into college and took an ethnomusicology class with a great teacher named Dr. Regula Qureshi up in University of Alberta. Um, And she put me on to a path of like actually being able to study that stuff uh, through local teachers in uh, in Canada. And then uh, I just kind of kept that going on. So, you know, and then there's like where I'm coming from, like my family, my parents, my, uh, you know, my mom is from Iceland. My dad is from Korea. I heard some uh, Gugak, traditional Korean music growing up and was interested in that. So I guess the sort of hierarchy of classical Western or, or European common practice and world music and popular genres never really impeded my thoughts too much. I didn't notice that they were segregated, of course. I feel like that's rare, at least in my experience. Mm. Teachers at least drilled into me, the separation between them. I definitely didn't grow up with that Mm. holistic view of all genres. I saw it very segmented. Well, I'm not saying that I that I grew up with it naturally and that was a walk in the park. Like there were certain moments where I had to like sit and check, check myself. Like, uh, yeah, I did have my very close teacher growing up who I studied with for a long time actually told me that some music was garbage, some music that I liked. Uh, I think maybe he was talking about the Rolling Stones or something like that. So I was like, no way, you know, it's not, I mean, I can't accept that. But I can accept his limitations coming from where he's coming from, so that's how I started try to deal with it you know do you think any music is trash nowadays yeah but even trash it might have other values it might be working in other like value systems you know so like example like music theory functional harmony if a tune goes by it doesn't have that much harmonic chord progressions like james brown i mean that's music is so valuable i think that's the most important musician almost 
in 20th century music, if you think about it. But there's not, you know, that much going on for art, some languages, music theory, stuff like that. So, I, you know, trash, I, <laughs> I don't want to go there, you know. I'm because, still chewing on the James Brown thing, like, hmm. I guess I need to delve into his catalog kind of more. Well, yeah, because uh, James Brown can sit on a chord for an entire piece, like just one chord, you know. Or, yeah. or one, like, simple, yeah. Yeah, and, and not move. But yeah. there's so much more value to it than just that. That doesn't make, actually make a difference. Yeah, in fact, it reinforces the, the, the strengths of it, which is just the intensity of the rhythmic propulsion. But also a lot of Indian music, right? And a sure, lot of other yeah. um, non-Western a classical music. A lot of music folk music in the world. Just chills on like, yeah, they'll chill just on a chill, chord baby. or a drone or something. So then in your music, when you're going to construct it, how do you meet, uh, make these two worlds meet? One of like, you know, relative simplicity and putting air quotes and one mm-hmm. of like complexity. Yeah, things. I guess I try to resist like dividing things into two twos, which is very hard because that's how we naturally think. So I guess that's where the non-music thing was coming from, too, is sort of like the one, like looking at sort of a unified field of music to begin with and then extracting yourself from it. I'm kind of following the language of this thinker named Laruel, Francois Laruel, who I've been interested in for several years, five or so years since uh, his books started coming out in English. And this is a philosopher? Yeah, yeah. Okay. What other philosophers are you inspired by a lot like Plotinus lately Laruel when you were talking about music and non-music and you're saying that things like performing or recording in the studio are almost non-music because they're um, virtual mm. but they're mm. virtual they're making a decision but you think music is actually so much more than that like it includes what we're doing right now it includes mm. discussing it and formulating ideas about it mm. What happens when you need to sit down, you need to write, you need to make something? How do you take how do you take all sure. of that yeah, and yeah. make put something? It, put it on the paper. Because <laughs> that's so much. Or do you just wait for inspiration? Or? No, no. You, I mean, it, well, it depends on the situation. I mean, sometimes you have to give, right? Sometimes you just know that you, you have to stay up all night and do this thing. Mm-hmm. Like you have morning. a deadline. Right, yeah, like the deadline. So that's also like, you know, work ethic, I guess. But um, but other times I feel like, you know, thoughts that come up, ideas for pieces are kind of a dime a dozen. So I let them go by, uh, let them pass by. But at the same time, I like, take a very subtle hint from a thought. Like basically if it like there's something kind of pleasing and it's but it's like barely noticeable, I kind of tend to go with that thought right now. What do you mean? Like something that doesn't ha- seem to have that much content or it's not that fa- fantastic or not that beautiful, but there's something about it that I like and I don't know why. Mm. So you go for the low barrier to entry ideas, <laughs> <laughs> basically. Yeah, yeah. The ones that seem like they're going to be the easiest, but then yeah. that, that kind of grow from like a seed rather than yeah. like I have this grand plan. Yeah, and I'm attracted to like the normal too, like the everyday or the normal. What are some the, examples? What, yeah, what is the normal? Normal sounds, like like non-musical sounds, like sounds of just materials. Like clicking my pen? Clicking the pen, yeah. Do you mean like mm. sampling the sounds or? Or creating the sounds. I'll give you an example okay. from like violin, viola technique. Like uh, 
lately I've been interested in colenio. Col- uh, yeah, yeah, that's how you say it, colenio. My tongue always gets tired. Using right. the back of the bow to hit the strings. Right. The yeah. wooden part of the bow. Yeah. Or Instead of the bump. horse hair. Mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah. So what you get is a very sort of static sound with like lots of little artifacts and strange pitches, just sort of like what would happen if you were listening to noises or natural sounds. Yeah, it's closer to an everyday sound in a, in, in a way. That's a good, good example, example because it's not the type of violin sound that most people hear and go, that's a violin, and they can immediately place it. By doing that, you're almost avoiding the immediate reference. Yeah, yeah, and the style. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if it's possible to do something with no style or a completely generic style, then I would be interested in knowing that. This flows into what I know about you and improvisation, which uh, is I took your improvisation um, like ensemble mm. a while ago. And one thing that differed from any improvisation that I've done in the past as a musician is normally we're told, you know, improvise on a blues scale, improvise, mm-hmm. do jazz improv, or, you know, basically you're following some sort of a language or scale mm. or a box. But you really try to have us create outside of the box, as cheesy as that sounds, but it's almost impossible. Yeah, definitely leads to a paradox. Because improvisation, that kind of improvisation, and something I probably should have said during that class, is like, it is a very strong tradition, it's a very strong style. And lately I've been like going back to group Ongaku from Tokyo, University of Tokyo from the 50s, that is one of the first collectives of so-called free improvisation. What does free improvisation mean? Non-idiomatic. Yeah, not using a set language. Even if you think of the concept of aleatory or choices, making choices in compositions, actually every improvisation is a little bit aleatory because you're always making choices. It's, It's more like of an ideal. Think about it like cooking. You want to create a meal, but you don't want to buy anything prepackaged. You would rather, you know, grind the spices yourself, prepare all the ingredients yourself, ultimately, you know, farm to table, maybe raise the livestock, do the gardening, you know, but you can't actually get to the level of creating the the seed for the plant or like the DNA of the mm-hmm. like animal if you do eat animals. So there is a there is a kind of limit. Right. So it's an ideal, but it's it's one of those things where you're never going to completely achieve it. It's impossible. But it might be possible under certain circumstances. I think there's moments where that space opens up, even in sort of normal generic free improvisation, even in a in a in a gig or suddenly you're somewhere where you've never been before and you don't know what's going on. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Serious question. Does it help if you are under the influence, if one is Mm. under the influence of other substances? Mm. In some respects, maybe. I mean, depending on what it is. Obviously, acid was a big thing during the 60s for a lot of musicians and stuff like that. But for me, in the... Long run, no, because substances and drugs take on a temporal arc, uh, which is similar to a musical arc, and there's 
some there can be like some kind of climactic moment with like psychedelic drugs or peak experiences which could be enjoyable but basically is dictating the shape of a musical or temporal experience mm-hmm. so I needed to be able to uh, expand that arc to where something could occur over several days or a full day or even longer like a, a lifetime year or a lifetime <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I so basically, plus, you know, obviously, like, ill effects on health. What is your favorite project that you've ever done? I know, tough question. Uh, my wife, Jessica Kenny, and myself have a duet, and we've mm-hmm. had great um, times, you know. Great, What's your duo like, called? Just our names, Haven Kong, Jessica Kenny. We have, like, several records out there. And she is a vocalist. Yeah, yeah. So that's usually for for the live gigs. Those have been some of my favorite. And we have a project also, Jessica and myself, with Ann Carson and uh, Bob Curry. We just did a few performances and one recording. Right now I'm trying to make the recording into a sound installation. That's definitely been a true favorite that I Let's have. Let's play a little bit of that. She sat at the counter and ate with her hands. 8.2. Left arm below right was considered uncouth. Do you have insecurities as an artist? Do I have insecurities? Yes. Or what are they? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What are they? Give us a couple. Uh, <laughs> what are a couple of your insecurities? Like, do you ever, mm-hmm. you have so many ideas. Do you ever get mm-hmm. writer's block? Do you ever wor- worry that the last yeah. thing you did is going to be your last one? You have no more left in you? Where can I begin? I mean, where's, <laughs> it's so vulnerable. Um, my technical insecurities as far as, te- like, technique on instruments yeah, I could go on and on because there's just not enough time to do things like I'm trying to study and it's just like, I guess I try not to let things like that weigh on me too much, at least in terms of like impeding. I don't think insecurity is really a problem if you can keep doing what you need to do. Yeah. Um, but if it sort of becomes a feedback loop to where you like get depressed and you can't like get out of bed, then it's definitely can become a problem. Yeah, it might even be motivating, you know. Yeah, it might even be like, I'm going to do this. I think that's a good point to uh, not deny yourself insecurities or pretend like they shouldn't exist in an ideal world, but just know how to handle them because it's going to happen. Yeah, it's, it's like watching the clouds. You see the cloud happen. in the sky and yeah. let it float on by, you know. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's right. And then people criticize, you know, there's there's haters no. Haters gonna hate. <laughs> what are what do people yeah. possibly hate what on are, you for? Give us like give us a uh, a good hate well, that's on through at you. Uh, well, I don't feel like it's. A, I just feel like a, sometimes it's like immodest, you know, because I range over different genres and stuff like that. Oh, so it's they think like you're not serious enough. Stay in your bag, kind of thing. What's oh. your bag? What do they think your bag is? I like don't classical. Know. I don't know. <laughs> Get back in one of those bags. Yeah. yeah, and I try to do that, man. I try to keep, uh, uh, like, retreat into, like, 
jazz viola because I was like, okay, well, this is like something that I can do. But even within there, it just doesn't really fit my daily life. Now we'd love to move on to some final lightning round questions. What do you the mean lightning... by lightning round? No, it's well, going to be fast. We will tell you. Quickly, okay. Lightning round is where we ask each guest the same six questions. So everyone has gotten this question already. Mm-hmm. Number one. What genre is your music? Humorous. Non, non-music. Non-music. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> uh, do you have any performance rituals? Uh, yeah, sure. I do uh, some qigong. I have some grounding. I'm, I'm into like Tao, like what do you call it? Self-cultivation. Qigongs, tai chi, stuff like that. A modern tech tool that's extremely helpful to your practice. Uh, definitely recording, co- recording and playback. I am. It's part of my practice. A failure that turned out for the best. I I don't know if they turned out to the best, but they turned into something different. You know. Um, I tried to adapt several techniques uh, from other instruments onto viola, like kachapi from uh, West Java into a pizzicato technique. It didn't work at all, but I ended up inventing another technique, So that, which is very important to me. I guess the pizzicato, the right-hand technique of viola is very important to me as a result of a lot of failed attempts at learning other fancy instruments. Something besides music that you're mm. obsessed with right now. Uh, agriculture, philosophy, definitely like question of like questions of justice, human rights, that kind of stuff. And last but not least, a piece of art that changed your life. I guess for me, it's the Large Glass by Duchamp. It's a piece. It's up in a Philadelphia Museum. It's put into a pane of glass, but it's a kind of summation of like lots of Duchamp's. Uh, works like the like the chocolate grinder like uh it's it's a kind of machine well thank you so much thank you <laughs> yeah. you can find Amy's music online and we'll include links in the show notes and we'll also include links where to buy his music mm. so as for the show notes this is how you find them depending on your podcast player you can either see the show notes directly in the podcast app like apple or overcast when you click for more info or you can view them at underscore.fm. Or you can join our closed Facebook group for underscore listeners. It's called Underscore Society. Stick around for these last few minutes because Thomas and I are going to give you our old, new, borrowed blue music obsessions for you to fall in love with. As you say goodbye to Avon Kong, we are going to play side one of his new album, Plain Light. I'm holding in my hand a beautiful vinyl, and here it is. Let's share our old, new, borrowed blue music picks. I'm going something old this week. And this came about because for next season, my piano duo is arranging um, opera and ballet music for two pianos. And I elected to do Philip Glass's Einstein on the Beach. And I just took a deep dive back in there. And it's an awesome, awesome piece. Specifically, the spaceship scene, which is the last major number of the opera. 
is what I'm arranging and it is awesome, awesome piece. The opera is called Einstein on the Beach, if you weren't sure about that. Yes. Uh, it's pretty wild. I have something new this week, and I recently discovered an organization called Music by Black Composers. Um, they're musicbyblackcomposers.org, and they recently published a living composers directory. So basically what that means is it's just a whole spreadsheet, a whole running directory of black composers who are living so that musicians and programmers can book them and commission them. And I noticed one composer on the list that I really like, so I will recommend one of her pieces. The composer is Jessie Montgomery, and the piece is Starburst. Love that piece. Yes, and borrowed, Chrysanthi, okay. as well. I also have borrowed this week. My recommendation is the song Iron by Woodkid. So Woodkid is a French neo-folk musician, but he also has a really huge career as a music video director, which is more where he's known for. So his notable music video direction work includes Katy Perry's Teenage Dream, Taylor Swift's single Back to December, Lana Del Rey's Born to Die, and this song is dramatic, it's cinematic, it's about preparing for epic battle, it's really orchestrated full on, it's not understated at all, like it really goes for it with a horn section and a very driving drum beat. It's just a really fantastic, motivating song to listen to and it's beautiful. So it's borrowed because this song has also been used in a lot of films and sampled in other things. For example, it's in the trailer for Assassin's Creed Revelations and it's also sampled in a Kendrick Lamar song called The Spiteful Chant. Deep in the ocean, dead and kissed away Marina Sansi's burning in flames A million miles from home, I'm walking ahead Frozen to the bones I am a soldier on my own I don't know the way I'm riding up the heights Oh shame I'm waiting for the call The hand on the chest I'm ready for the fight And fate For something blue, you have to follow me here So synesthesia is where your senses are crossed And a typical result is people can hear colors Scriabin, a turn-of-the-century composer had synesthesia, or so he claimed, and his piece Prometheus, the Poem of Fire, Opus 60, written in 1910, uses an instrument, or not so much an instrument, but a color organ or a color keyboard, where someone in the ensemble plays this keyboard and the keyboard projects colors onto a screen in front of the orchestra. So that is blue, because blue comes out that keyboard. We will list all these things in the show notes if you want to listen for yourself. We've heard from more than a few people saying you actually like checking out these music recs, which just tells us you have good, uh, very eclectic taste. 
And that does it for today's episode of Underscore, where we explore the innovative music of artists who create beyond the boundaries of classical. Thank you for joining us. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore FM, follow our Facebook page at facebook.com slash underscore FM, and even join our closed Facebook group for listeners. Yes, that special Facebook group is called Underscore Society, and it's a great place to have conversations with other open-minded, curious music lovers. In the group, we also reveal our upcoming guests there, so you can get a sneak peek and suggest questions for us to include in the interview. Last but not least, thank you to everyone who's gone to iTunes and given us a rating and review. It makes us truly happy. Once again, you've been listening to Underscore. I'm Chris Anthony Tan. I'm Thomas Kotcheff. And, and we'll, we'll see, see you next time. time.